So we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And, and I pray that you'd use your word this morning to uh, encourage the faint-hearted, to strengthen us in our weakness, to bring us wisdom where we are confused. That every word that we hear this morning, that the preciousness of Jesus would increase to us that we'd be more amazed at your grace and your love toward us, having been together this morning than when we came in. Thank you for the privilege it is to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go and have a seat. Such a privilege to be with you, privilege to sing with you, and and to hear your voices raised up to King Jesus. My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to open up God's Word for us this morning. We're going to be in the book of Matthew And we are just starting our study through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab a chair Bible. Uh, We'll have the lyrics up here and the verses up here as well. Um, But it's on page 757 of your chair Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that. It's our gift to you. Love to love you to have God's word for yourself. Um, A sweeping kind of theme of the book of Matthew is the king and his kingdom. And so you might have seen the sign out in the foyer that will last us over the next year or two, I won't say two years because you laughed at me last weekend when I said two years. But this book is massive. Uh, it's, it's massive in size, but it's certainly not lacking in, in importance. And ultimately, when you look at the, the Gospel of Matthew, and you could say that really the story of the New Testament is the king, namely Jesus himself, building his kingdom. And so you have a king that in his first coming, Jesus his, his inauguration, his first visit, as it were, he begins and ushers in his kingdom. And he's continuing now to build his kingdom. And one day, ultimately, it'll finally be built and we get to be with him forever. And what's interesting about our story and our role in this whole grand scheme of God's redemptive story is that, that we're among the number of people in the kingdom. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, then you're counted among a group of unlikely converts throughout the course of history. And so you will be found in that kingdom one day and now in an already not yet sort of way as an unlikely convert, an unlikely subject to this king, King Jesus. And so that's really what this book is about. And the author of the book, Matthew, his story was one of being an unlikely convert. He was a tax collector, which, because most of us don't come from a Jewish background, we don't really know the flavor and the tenor of being a tax collector. It was among the most hated professions in culture, in Jewish culture, because of their abuse of the Jewish people and and Roman citizenship. And so Matthew is a tax collector. He's hated by the people of God, and Jesus looks at him one day. We see this later in the book of Matthew, in the book of Matthew in chapter 9. He calls him by name. He says, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, follow me. And from that point on, Matthew's changed. He's a changed man. His life is different. But he goes on to chronicle the life, the birth, the life, the ministry, and the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's one of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when we look at the way in which God used this man to write 
to pen this book through the inspiration of God's Spirit, like we should be encouraged. This is a brief note, like a gospel note for us as we start off, even before we read Matthew 1, 18 through 25, is that God will use even the darkness of your past to shine a light on his glory. He will take unlikely converts and he'll say something about the enormity of his grace and his power to take unlikely people and use them for his purposes. If you're a believer, that's you. If you're not in Christ this morning, that can be you. The invitation is plain and it's clear and it's loud. Trust in Jesus, the King, the King who came, the King who will come again to get his people. And we're going to, on this New Year's Eve, we're going to read the Christmas story. How about that, right? We talk about how Christmas isn't just for Christmas Day. Really, this is kind of a living illustration of that. We're going to read Matthew 1, 18 through 25, which is the story of the birth of Jesus, Jesus as Israel's promised king. Let's go ahead and read those verses together. This is God's word for us, and this is what it says. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. In verse 18, we see this start. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Jesus was born in a time, in a place. Matthew says, this is the way this all went down. And so he begins to chronicle the way this happened. And what's really interesting, and I learned this this week, and I'll share it with you because I do think it frames in how we understand the book of Matthew, and it puts it in a a biblical framework that includes Old and New Testament alike. Because one thing that, that happens in the language in Matthew 1, 1 and one eighteen <clears throat> is it uses a word that actually shoots us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. So the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, it's the book of beginnings. It's the, the story, the chronicling of the, the beautiful glory of God in creation. The preexistent creator made everything out of nothing. And he took a world that was formless and void and he gave it shape and purpose and life and meaning. And he created, as a culminating work of creation, he created men and women in his image. He took a dark world and he filled it with light. And in Genesis 2-4, we see this word. In Genesis 2-4, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth, and the heavens. Just a brief note here. So the Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew, but there's a, there's a Greek version 
of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And at times you can see the way translators applied one word in the Old Testament and also use it in the New. And here's the relevance for us as we study the book of Matthew. In Genesis 2-4, the word generations is the word Genesis. So that word we find in Matthew 1-1 and Matthew 1-18. Let's read those two verses. Matthew 1-1 says the book of the genealogy or the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew 1-18 that we just read. Now the birth or the genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And I'm not trying to wow you with linguistics. I don't have the intelligence to do that, but here's the relevance. Is a Genesis, just as Genesis is the book of beginnings, Matthew, you could say, is the book of new beginnings. That God started a work in Genesis, and now there's a work in the New Testament that God is recreating. Like he created in the one, and he recreated, as it were, in the next through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Genesis chronicles God's work of creation and Matthew God's work of recreation through the incarnation of the Son of God. So Genesis starts with the miracle of creation and Matthew starts with the miracle of what we know as the incarnation where God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see the details given to us when his Mother Mary had been betrothed or legally committed or pledged to Joseph before they came together, before their marriage was consummated physically. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So culturally, in this moment, in Jewish culture, a couple would be engaged. So there'd be an engagement period followed by the betrothal, which was a legally binding moment where someone was committed to be married to someone. It was as good as being married. But the difference was in the betrothal, which was like a year long, there wouldn't be a physical consummation. They wouldn't live with one another until that usually around a year had lapsed. And then the husband would show up, namely at a time unexpected, to consummate the marriage and they would live together as husband and wife from then on. So really interesting. We don't have much context for that, but that's why you see in verse 18, the note that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but then he's, re- he's referred to as her husband in verse 19. It really is in, in a sense, both and. But they had not come together yet physically. And Mary was found to be with child. And we're not, we don't, we aren't given a ton of details on that conversation, like how that took place and what it looked like. And how it came about that Joseph knew, whether or not she told him a detailed conversation about the angel who came to her, or if he just noticed and then she told her. We don't really have those details, but she was found to be with child. And you can think of the massive difficulty this miracle would have created for this couple. It doesn't take much imagination. In this moment, or in any cultural moment, for someone who's betrothed, legally bound to be married to someone to show up and say, hey, I'm, I'm with child. And for the, the husband to, to say, well, we've never been physically together. Like, how can that be? That's, that's a difficult moment for any couple. And we watched one of the many versions that are out there recently of the, the story of the journey to Bethlehem. And one of the things that it depicted, which is an interesting thing to consider, is like I never really thought much about Mary's conversation with her parents or Joseph's conversation with his parents. 
But this, this whole journey is fraught with difficulty. This moment is really challenging because it's a supernatural event. Mary had to tell Joseph. They had to tell their parents. So Joseph's response is both understandable and commendable because he would have had, in a sense, the freedom to publicly shame Mary, given the law. But he didn't. He was a righteous man, and so he was going to divorce her quietly because he didn't want, her, want to put her to shame. In verse 20, it says, but as he considered these things, as he was in the process of thinking about what he was going to do in response to her being pregnant, even though they had never been together, an angel appears. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Do not fear is a pretty common announcement from God and from angels in the Christmas story. Because really the announcement is, is alarming, right? This is a major deal. Like this is pretty disturbing and pretty unorthodox and unusual. And so the angel, much like he said to Mary, he says, don't, don't be afraid. God's at work in the middle of what you think is, is a huge mess. Joseph is the only other person called the son of David in the New Testament. We looked at that last week, referring to Jesus as the son of David, the ultimate fulfillment of this king, this promised king that would occupy the throne of Israel and the throne of David forever. That's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But Joseph is also referred to as the son of David to connect him as the legally binding descendant from David to Jesus. The angel's reminding Joseph of God's promises to put an end to his fear. That's something practically for you and I. As you think about maybe your fears going into this next year, or just in general in your life, like what role does the promises of God play in your life to quell your fears? Time and time again, as we sing about the faithfulness of God, as we look at lyrics and we sing about them, it really is anchoring us to the promises of God the character of God, to do certain things, to be true to his word. And the angel Gabriel does the same thing with Mary in Luke's gospel account. And look at this with me. In Luke 1, 30 and 32, the angel said to, to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. My guess is there are some of us in this room that you might look around, like, and you have a different mess maybe than what we're talking about in this, a different challenge in this scenario, but a challenge nonetheless and I'll just encourage you that the same message applies to us. Don't be afraid. God will keep his promises. Don't be afraid. God is true to his word. And even the very things that make you fearful are actually God fulfilling his word and his promises. Verses 22 and 23. Matthew says this, as all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, speaking of Isaiah, 
in the Old Testament. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us from Isaiah 7, 14. So I mentioned last week, and as you look at the Gospels, Matthew is, as a Jewish man, but particularly his approach to the the birth, life, ministry, and death of Jesus, he's the most Jewish of the Gospels. And one of the reasons we could say that is because he quotes the Old Testament more than any other author. 62 times he quotes the Old Testament. As you look in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we'll see this as we get into chapter 2, you see four or five different or separate quotes from the Old Testament in chapter 2 alone. And the point being is, is this. Matthew wants us to see and be assured of the fact that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament spoke about. He is the promised king. Look to him. Find life in him. All the security is bound up and everything you've been waiting for is found and fulfilled in him. He constantly points to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's word. And it really, in many ways, reminds us of what Jesus said about himself. What the word says about him, Matthew 5, 17, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but what? To fulfill them. And the constant juxtaposition of Jesus and the religious leaders and the antagonism between them toward him. One of those moments, he looks at them, he says, hey, you pour over and you love the scriptures, but it's those very things that point to me. Find life in me. Like those things are intended to lead you to me. And maybe we need to hear that this morning as well. Whether it's coming to church and doing right things, being in God's word, that we don't go to God's word ultimately just to check a box, but we go to the word of God to find the God of the word. That we might draw near to him, that we might know him better. Matthew wants us to know and believe Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. So specifically, he zooms in on Isaiah chapter 7. So if you're not all that accustomed with the Bible, you got this Old Testament where you have the works of God, and one of the ways in which he speaks in the Old Testament is through prophets. And Isaiah is one of the major kind of granddaddy prophets to the Jews. And Isaiah chapter 7, which was written 700 years before Jesus was even born, it speaks in Isaiah chapter 7 of this unique one that would come, this baby king. And Matthew says, Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Arguably one of the most difficult to interpret. But this is one of the things we're going to have to do as we study Matthew is we're going to have to dive in for a moment into Old Testament. But just real briefly, if you look back in Isaiah, there's a king named Ahaz who is a wicked, wicked king, arguably the most wicked of the kings of Israel and kings of Judah. Notably, he's found in Jesus' family tree. We talked about that last week all the different lumps in the family tree of Jesus, the unlikely ancestors leading up to the the king. But Isaiah chapter 7, there's this promise, this somewhat strange promise given to Ahaz. He's concerned about an attack from Syria and from Israel being the king of Judah. And God confronts him with a promise. It says that there's going to be a baby born. And there's some debate as to like where the, maybe the, the most near fulfillment is of that. You see in chapter 8 of Isaiah, there's this baby that's born to a prophetess. It might have been there. But what we do know is that ultimately and finally, there's a baby that is born to a virgin, a woman. 
that's never been with a man, this child that comes to rescue people from their sins. The prophecy was a word of encouragement in the face of Ahaz's fear, and the word about Jesus is an encouragement to us in the face of our fear. Jesus is the son conceived and born of a virgin who would be God with us. This is one of the deep ends of the the theological pool. We start talking about the incarnation and the virgin birth. This is not just kind of theological principles that we put in our notebooks and say we stack hands on, but these make all the difference in the world to the gospel. Because Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, it means that Jesus is fully God. Everything God is, Jesus is. You see this in many places. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The one who had no beginning in this moment began to be. The one through whom everything was made was fearfully and wonderfully made in the womb of a virgin by the Spirit of God. This is mind-blowing. And we watch Christmas movies, and they seem to us pretty sentimental. But this is no doubt supernatural. And when you think about the creation account of Genesis, coupled with it as the greatest miracle would be the incarnation of the Son of God. God become flesh to dwell among men that he might rescue us from our sins. One author, Doug O'Donnell, put it this way. He said, it was the work of the Holy Spirit to, quote, Genesis Jesus. Just as the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters at creation, Genesis 1-2, so here for our salvation, the Spirit overshadowed Mary's womb, making God's Son into one of us with bones and brains and blood, with lungs and lips and lymph nodes, with head and with hands. Isaiah 57, 15 says, the one who is high and lifted up and who inhabits eternity, that's the name is given to God. The one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, that same God became low and despised and inhabited our humanity. That's the story of the incarnation. Jesus has always been, but in his birth, he he put on a second nature. He became flesh to dwell among us. And maybe it's just peculiar to us. Maybe for you, you're like, man, I've heard this before. Like, what's the, what's the significance? Was found in many places, but it's found in his name to save his people from their sins. So Jesus came that he might live the perfect life that you and I could never live. And he would die as a substitute in our place, taking our shame and our guilt in the full so that we could be forgiven. He rose from the grave victorious, proving that he was God in the flesh, and that when he died, he died for you and not for his own sins. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom everything was made in heaven and on earth, the one who was God in the beginning, the one who was with God, the Father and the Spirit in the beginning, takes on human form. Because we need a Savior that shares our humanity 
But the key is he can't share our sinful nature, and that's the importance of the virgin birth. That Jesus, born by the Spirit of God, is able to be fully man and fully God. Because sin is deeper than what we do. It's in our nature. Jesus, being born of the Holy Spirit by a virgin, enabled him to be the only human who was holy, while at the same time being holy, W-H-O-L, human. He was completely human, but he was the only holy human that ever was. Luke one thirty five. this angel says this to Mary. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Jesus was fully man. And we'll get to the significance of this in just a second. But emotionally, physically, developmentally, interpersonally, he was fully, 100% man. In him, all the fullness of God dwelled bodily in human form, in human flesh. He had to learn to eat, to sleep, to walk, to talk. He learned and matured. He knew hunger and thirst. He had friends. He had enemies. He got lonely. He knew sadness and he knew loss. He felt pain and he cried and he laughed. He suffered and he was tempted. And one of my favorite comments about the incarnation came from a pastor named Sinclair Ferguson as he just kind of pondered the question of like, why do it this way? I mean, God could have done it any way. Like, why become a man? And he kind of considers the answer in this. He says, well, maybe it was so you and I could never look at Jesus and say, you don't understand. The full range of human experience Jesus experienced. And that's why you see in the book of Hebrews this deep connection with our humanity and the way that we're called to relate to Jesus and able to relate to Jesus as a, not just a faithful high priest, but one who sympathizes with our weakness. In Hebrews 2.18, it says, because he, Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Do you suffer today? You feel tempted today? Go to Jesus. Like he's a man acquainted with your grief acquainted with your temptation and your sorrows, so connected to sorrows. He's considered a man of sorrows in Isaiah chapter 53. Hebrews 4 goes on to say, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, if Jesus Christ be God with us, let us come to God without any question or hesitancy. Whoever you may be, you need no priest or intercessor to introduce you to God for God has introduced himself to you. God with us. And we take special note of nobles and kings and presidents who visit spaces where we might say they're kind of rubbing shoulders with common folk. We think about presidents visiting war-torn areas or places that have been hit by natural disasters. You might even think of campaigns where every once in a while like a candidate will show up at a 
coffee shop or donut shop, like having a coffee or a donut with the common folk, right? And we kind of marvel, like, man, this is crazy that they would be, they would choose to be with us just for a minute. Like, wow, take a look at it. And if you can just take whatever, whatever part of us has this impulse to be like, man, that's amazing that they would draw near to common people. And you multiply that by infinity, and you might come close to what it means for God to be with us in the flesh, in the physical, but not just to be with us, to suffer for us. Intriguing, miraculous incarnation. Verse 24, it says, When Joseph woke from sleep, it says, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What's interesting about this section for us is that Joseph is the central figure in this part of the story, but he doesn't say a word. Like, there's no exchange. Like, he doesn't say anything other than the notion that he calls Jesus by the name Jesus at the end. But you know what is present? Like his silent, faithful obedience to God. He gets up and he obeys God. The final word of this section, we see Joseph quietly, humbly obey God. Joseph trusts God's word in the face of his difficulty. Let me say it this way, just pastorally as a friend and as a brother. Like in times when you want to abandon the direction of God, it's a deep conviction in the promises of God and a deep belief in the character of God that will win the day in the midst of your difficulty, that will cause you to be faithful to God. And to be sure, 2024 is going to have its moments where you want to abandon faithfulness to God. But you want to turn your back on Him to try to find Life in places where only death is promised. That's the human story. All of us have gone astray like sheep. But God in his infinite kindness has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on this baby king, the Lord Jesus. And you might say to yourself, like you're looking at Joseph, like, man, yeah, he obeyed, but I mean, I would obey too if the angels would come and tell me what to do. I'd find it a lot easier you might, I mean, I was the only one thinking of that. I was like, man, this would be a lot easier if God would show up to me in dreams or angels. If I could have an angel voice telling me what to do, following God, I mean, we could do this thing. It'd be all right. But here's what the Bible says to that particular temptation. Briefly put, like we have a greater word than the word of angels. Like this word right here, and the word made flesh who dwelt among us, It's greater than the voices of angels. You see that in Hebrews chapter 1. It says this in verses 1 and 2. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He's been given a name that's greater than the angels. It's the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews. That Jesus is better than. He's, he's the greater Moses. He's greater than angels. He's greater than David. He's the one that we need to look to. Second Peter chapter 1. 
talks about this incredible experience for Peter, James, and John, where they're on the mountain with Jesus when he was transformed in their very sight. And we talked about this when we went through Second Peter as a church. And Peter draws this interesting correlation between that, that experience, the very real experience of seeing Jesus in the physical, transformed in their sight. He's like, he's like we have a word even more sure than that experience. Like we have the scriptures more fully confirmed that even me sitting there seeing Jesus transformed, like God's word is even more sure than that. And you would do well to pay attention to that. God's word made fully confirmed, not the voice of angels, but the voice of God himself speaking to us in his word through his son. We have a greater word than the words of angels. And we're called to obey and to follow At the beginning of our study of Matthew's gospel that we're in right now, we're introduced to this baby king who is Emmanuel, God with us. The book of Matthew starts with Jesus coming to be with us to to help us in our mess. What we see at the very end of the book, if you were to flip all the way to the end of the book of Matthew, the very last verse, you know what we see? I'm with you. We see God unleash his people unto mission with the same promise securing them. Go make disciples of all nations. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Teaching them to obey all I've commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you until the end of the age. If you're a believer in this room, be secured by the promises of God. He will be faithful to his word this year, just like he was last. And he's going to be faithful to pick you up, an unlikely convert, and to use you for his purposes if you submit your life to him. And you can have this soul-securing promise that he's going to be with you as he sends you out to make him known. Because doesn't he deserve to be made known? Doesn't his fame... Shouldn't it be resounding from his people, not just in here as we sing, as beautiful, wonderful as it is to sing together. Like our voices should be speaking of the the works and the majesty and the grace of God when we leave this place because the world desperately needs to hear it. So if you know Jesus today, let your heart be encouraged and secured that from beginning to end, he is with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's going to finish the work he started in you. He perpetually invites us to draw near to find our needs met in him. And maybe you're in this room and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. I just want you to know that I'm really grateful that you're here. I'm really thankful you're here to hear this message. And maybe you feel, maybe your life is a little bit like Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7. Because what happened to Ahaz is ultimately... Ahaz looked to other places for his help instead of God. God gave him the opportunity to trust in him. He even challenged Ahaz to believe in him. But he said, I'm not going to believe in you. I'm going to forge alliances with things in the world. That's where I'm going to find my security. My encouragement to you is stop running away from God to find security in places where it can never be found. This message is for you this morning that trust in the only one who was sent and can provide salvation for your soul, who can remedy your greatest problem, 
and demonstrated that through his perfect life, lived loving God and loving others perfectly, so he was able to die as your substitute. And the miracle of the Christian faith and Christian message is that when you gaze upon the finished work of this Savior given to us, given to you and for you, that there's this foreign righteousness attributed to your account. Everything that Jesus was and is, is attributed to you. You got a foreign righteousness applied to you. So when you get to the end and stand before God, it'll be like you're standing in a robe that doesn't belong to you, covered in the the robe of Jesus' righteousness. So the New Testament and what it says can be found to be true of you, that you're holy and blameless and beyond reproach, even though you're not, you are in Jesus. That's the offer. But it takes surrender, and it comes with a cost. But what the gospel tells us is that if you lose your life, for Jesus' sake and for his gospel, that's where you truly find it. But if you try to find your life in this world, you're only going to end up losing it. So find your life in him today. Amen. Let me pray. God, you're worth following. You're worth our submission. You are a good and gracious king, as we sang earlier. I pray that you would increasingly convince us of that. Father, thank you for sending your own son. Jesus, thank you for your unbelievable humility that you who uh, the word says dwells in unapproachable light that you chose to dwell among us in the midst of our darkness and our pain and experiencing even our temptation and our suffering so that you could be a faithful high priest God, would you remind us as we leave this place of the joy of our salvation if we know you. I pray that we would take very seriously the call to be men and women who make you known in this world. Would 2024 be filled with conversations, like gospel conversations with our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, those in this community who need to hear the sweet hope of the gospel of Jesus. Thank you that we have salvation through Jesus' name. Thank you that we have purpose in life. God, the very work that you did when you breathed light and life and purpose into the world in the beginning, you do that into your people. You give us a new nature and you give us light instead of our darkness. You fill our lives with purpose when they're formless and void of any life. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done. We love you. You deserve more love and affection and allegiance from us, and I pray that that would increase in our lives this year. If there's anybody in this room that has never bent their knee to you, God, would you do the work that only you can do to bring them to a place where they see their deep need for you and they run to Christ and trust in him. Thank you for this day. We get to celebrate all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go and stand together. We'll see.